This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Grant Collins will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, it is May 18th, Tuesday. Markets, for the most part, were pretty unchanged. Um, Dow was, well, Dow was down 0.78%. We also saw volatility up um, about eight percentage points as well. Uh, the 10-year was unchanged at 1.64%. Um, one thing that I should note that I think is pretty interesting is Michael Burry's position that he placed on Tesla. When we're talking about this previous week, he got about 800,000 shares worth of puts, uh, which is count on Tesla, which accounts to $534 million. Um, and ending on the first quarter. Um, so yeah, uh, I mean, and we've seen what has happened to Tesla, uh, especially, you know, after stellar performance uh, months ago, it could be an attractive payday. It was also a very aggressive position. Well, if you think about Elon Musk and Tesla, they are having some pressure from multiple fronts. So we saw the California Department of Motor Vehicles are investigating Tesla for whether they misled customers about their self-driving technology. We also seen some other motor uh, really companies, but regulators looking into uh, the batteries and um, exploding of the cars. And then um, also we see that uh, they were, we can talk about this uh, later on, but that the FTC warned about uh, people impersonating Musk and stole over $2 million in, in cryptocurrency scams. Uh, over the last couple of weeks. So be for you cryptocurrency traders out there, Elon Musk is probably uh, not reaching out to you. Yeah, and there's only one Elon Musk. That man's a pretty <laughs> unique personality, to say the least. Uh, we saw Atlanta Fed Reserve President Raphael Bostic uh, stocking CNBC this previous Monday. He said he's comfortable with the central bank's ultra-loose policy, even when we're looking at some definitely some heightened um, inflation. Right now, the Fed's keeping short-term benchmark borrowing rates around zero. Uh, it's still buying at least 120 billion worth of bonds each month. Uh, this is even in light of the fact that you know we're looking at April CPI that was 4.2 percent, uh, and Bostic's you know the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now tracker is putting second quarter growth at 10.5 percent. So um, that was that has obviously been on the market's minds, and one item in particular that is really had some heightened pricing is is retail gas obviously well we saw it for the first time that gasoline prices topped three dollars so the national average for regular gas was 3.02 dollars per gallon so we did see a heightened move there we did mention last week that that the colonial pipeline shutdown that supplies 45% of the oil to the to the west coast was shut down for a couple of days that, that had a big impact there but i think the underlying factor of, of of why gas is going up is because we are seeing americans with high vaccinations getting back into the world so uh take in summer so taking road trips and uh going back to work so commuting uh and really that the demand for fuel uh has gone up uh, as as well. Uh, so that also had another impact, not just the 
shutdown of the pipeline. Yeah, the effects of gas haven't been felt evenly. Um, I mean, gas prices, according to AAA, went up roughly 18% on the past month. Uh, but when you're looking at states like North Carolina, which you've seen the Colonial Gas Pipeline Corridor, you know, from Texas going up to the East, Key, East Coast, the Southeast was hit pretty significantly. Um, but, you know, like as to your point, in terms of travel, AAA travel expects a significant rebound in the number of Americans planning to travel over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, estimated at 37 million people are expected to travel at least 50 miles or more from their home. That's an increase of 60% from last year. So, you know, only 23 million people were traveling during this time, uh, which was, you know, the lowest on record since 2000. So, like you say, there's no shortage of pent up demand. And that is especially the case as of traveling when everyone's been so stir crazy and stuck at home. Yeah, well, if you compare this period to last last year, it's up 41%, uh, an average of 8.9 million barrels a day. And, and as you said, this is the first time that we've seen an average over $3 a gallon um, in, the, in the last six and a half years. So gas has been relatively low. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking at excluding volatile, like food and energy prices, which are volatile in, in any market, especially when you're looking at uh, basic commodities like you know eggs um, and, and obviously oil. But when we're excluding all that, core CPI increased from 3% uh, from the same period in 2020. And we're looking at a 0.9% on a monthly basis. Uh, this is significantly above expectations. Uh, expectations were you know, 2.3% uh, year over year and then 0.3% on a monthly basis. We saw used car and truck prices go up uh, 21%, which is usually a key inflation indicator. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is we are seeing rising prices, but if we think about the comparisons year over year, we're obviously going to have high inflation because yeah. we're we're in the months where we went into a lockdown. So we had a, a widespread shutdown of the U.S. economy. So inflation was really at all time lows if we look at the year over year comparison. And that may be why we see the Fed Reserve policymakers and, and other economists dismissing the the high numbers because if we're comparing it to last year, that, that that's not the best comparison. No, it, it's certainly not. And a good comparison would be looking at the last recession, uh, obviously, um, in April 2012, that was the last time President Barack Obama saw inflation above 2%. And then we're looking at inflation that was also very flat uh, throughout, you know, Donald Trump's term. Um, and, you know, I mean, you saw obviously an incredible uh, amounts of spending and tax cuts in both ad those administrations. So uh, neither of those two administrations would be accused of being penny pinchers. Um, but demand is just, you know, has been pent up and is so much greater. Yeah. And if we think about historically, when we think about inflation, if we take the last decade, uh, the inflation of 2% target that the Fed is, is looking for, we exceeded or met that target 14 times over 121 monthly readings. So really, as we mentioned before, inflation has not been, uh, that big of, a, of an indicator and, and a threat to the economy. And, and one, I think, really important thing is that when we think about inflation, usually if we are in an inflationary 
period where, where prices are going up, that usually is a sign of, of strong economic growth. So a little rise in inflation may actually be a good indicator for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously, you know, this inflation in particular, more than other times, is definitely, uh, you know, a wait and see um, circumstance uh, as, we're, as we're looking at, you know, jobs coming back, um, you know, despite April jobs being report being below expectations and uh, and disappointing. Uh, you know, there, there's there's a lot of stuff that has to play out before we have a better idea of actual, you know, price levels and what we can be expecting. And and one big factor that that one that a couple of economists are looking at is is they thought inflation would remain low because of an aging population, uh, fewer babies, and then also uh, automation. We did see the former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers had been warning about these temporary bursts of inflations because these are more macroeconomic, uh, have not been fixed. Again, the automation, the deceleration of the population. So he, he thinks we could continue to see these temporary uh, increases in inflation over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in, in terms of, um, I mean, confidence is definitely coming back as well. Uh, you know, when we're looking at the last job report, Yes, I mentioned it was lower, but when we're looking at the last three months, the United States economy has added five hundred thousand dollar, uh, five hundred thousand new jobs as a month. Um, and the previous three months before that, you're looking at you know sixty thousand. So right direction, uh, but yeah, I mean we're we're not hitting that million uh, mark as we expected. We are seeing. Republicans trying to get rid of the the unemployment three hundred dollars per month. Uh, they think that that is one of the reasons why we're not seeing jobs being filled so quickly and, and not getting people off the sidelines because there's a, a large percentage of people who are making more with these benefits than they would at their other jobs. But a, a couple of big factors that I think that need to be discussed on those is is one kids still aren't back in schools. So there are limited child care options. And then also there, there are a, a large number of small businesses, especially in the hospitality and leisure sector, restaurants who have still been closed, who are gone out of business, where, where people have not been able to find work. Yeah. I mean, in the economist article really put three big things. You're looking at a potential of overgenerous benefits. You're looking at a potential of fearful and reticent workers and going back in the labor market. And lastly, you're looking at a severe reallocation of labor between industries. Uh, point that, I mean, I think there's a lot of discussion on the stimulus checks and then, you know, generous unemployment. I think there's also a lot of discussion on, you know, workers who are still very uh, wary of um, going in before, you know, we have a critical herd immunity for the va- uh, vaccines. Uh, but the last thing I think is a big point, which is that, you know, you're looking at people who are laid off in any one of our major metros, especially somewhere like Manhattan, if you were a bartender, uh, even now those jobs are still going to be tough to get. Uh, the, the, and the analogy they use is if you're a delivery driver in Westchester County, that's, you know, you're going to be able to pick up on that quicker. Right? People need their DoorDash. Yeah, people need their... So, right, there's been definitely a shift in uh, traditional labor. And then also when you're looking at, you know, population density and everything else, uh, 
in light of the lockdowns and reallocation of human capital moving across the country, that that stuff's going to take a while to get sorted out. It will definitely have an impact. But also, if you look at the jobs in different industries and compare them based on the impact that the pandemic has had, it is interesting. So if you look at jobs in healthcare, recreation and hospitality, those has reported the highest level of job openings relative to employment. And if we think about those, those would be the have the most exposure to other people or or the virus itself. So people may be a little standoffish, which is understandable. Whereas if you look at construction, um, construction is at the lowest level uh, the number of jobs opening is lower than pre-pandemic levels. Mm -hmm. So based on the industry that you're looking, um, that does have a big impact. One of the things that I would like to see or or for people to explore is, yes, if we get rid of this unemployment insurance of, of $300 a month, could we possibly change that into a back to work bonus that people had previously discussed? Because that may be a, a way to get people off the sidelines uh, to incentivize them to, to get back into the workforce. Right. And I think you're actually going to see some wage inflation that's been pent up for a long time, too, uh, just outside of an, an additional incentive. Uh, I think it was Bank of America who day said they were going to be raising their minimum wage to twenty five bucks an hour, uh, which if we were to look at historical productivity, um, that might be close to the number. It would be assuming that productivity kept up with wages over these decades. Yeah. And there was the, in the same article, they were talking about how uh, McDonald's had to uh, pay $15 to have people who flip burgers and just for a job interview. Delta Airlines had to cancel 100 flights for lack of staff. So in, in order to entice people to come back to work, it's either going to have to be this back to work bonus or, or, or higher wages. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would be a good thing because obviously that's been really the drag on our completely the economy, but also just the social fabric of the country for a long time. Um, there's also been a lot of discussion on how multinationals should be taxed. Uh, I mean, obviously, when when countries are more revenue strapped, which they certainly are now, uh, you have more of analysis on how much of profits are being sent to offshore um, you know, when you're looking at OECD, they suggest that multinationals report 25% of their profits in investment hubs. But when you're looking at it, only 11% of their tangible assets and less than 5% of their workers are actually based there. So, you know, you have a lot of stuff that's, um, you know, heading to, to Ireland, for example, which, you know, has got a 12.5%, um, statutory rate. Uh, Bermuda's got zero. And it's all it's really been a competitive race to the bottom since uh, 1985, when the global average was around 49 percent. You know, 2018, it was 24. So, yeah, you've seen a huge decrease uh, in in corporate tax rates uh, across the globe. And that's led to obviously a a shift in resources. Well, you've seen in 2016, one trillion of global profits were booked in these investment hubs, so Cayman Islands, Ireland, Singapore, and they apply an effective tax rate of 5% on profits for non-resident companies. So you you do see a lot of the, the large multinational companies going there. Uh, if we take American multinational foreign profits, uh, so in two decades ago, about 30% were booked in these tax havens. And in 2019, we saw 60%. And, and really, the way they're able to do this is even if the 
the flows are, are, are in the United States or maybe France, for example, mm-hmm. uh, they say that they are uh, leasing the technology to the subsidiaries in those countries and therefore that the home country is in Ireland. This could be a big boost. I can see why the Biden administration is looking at it because we have seen a, a lot of U.S. national companies go flee to these tax havens and not pay the taxes, especially if we think about how much the U.S. government has been spending due to the pandemic, the infrastructure bill. Uh, I'm sure they would like to get some get harvest some of those taxes. Yeah, I mean, and Americans and, and the federal government obviously feel like they're getting fleeced, and I think that's rightfully so. Uh, but then there's other countries that have qualms with uh, Silicon Valley in particular, right? So you're looking at more than 40 governments, uh, France and India are included in these, are, are planning on levying um, digital services taxes uh, at the revenue of a lot of big firms out of Silicon Valley. So Google, Apple, uh, or Amazon, Facebook. Um, and that's definitely going to be part of a broader conversation as well. Talking about the European Union, looks like their growth outlooks have increased. Um, so the European Commission upgraded its growth outlook for the currency block uh, this year to 4.3%, up from 3.8%, uh, taking into account the 800 billion euro joint recovery fund. Um, so that is in dollars, uh, 971 billion. So quite a substantial package that has been negotiated. Uh, and then we are seeing that we may see some slight growth at the end of this year, but more quickly in, in 2022 and seems like a good outlook for the for the EU. Yeah, it's also different. Obviously, in the last recession, a lot of European countries pursued austerity, uh, but like the states, a lot of them have gone full Keynesian. Um, this this runarounds uh, when we're looking at, you know, the euro era, era area public debt. That's was 100 percent of GDP last year. By uh, it's expected to peak at 102 percent and then fall slightly uh, to 101 percent in 2022. Uh, but then you got countries like Italy that hit 160 percent of GDP this year. So this what's p- wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll wait and see. Obviously, <laughs> um, but but yeah. Uh, I mean, and obviously you're looking at vaccines and. About 29% of Europe's or EU's populations have received at least one vaccine um, at this point. And then you're seeing a lot more investor confidence in countries like Germany that have been able to start turning around their vaccines. Which is always good. Let's shift gears here, Drew, and let's talk about the race for rare earth metals. In February, we saw Joe Biden issue an executive order, uh, really in effect about the vulnerable supply chains uh, that are key to economic and national securities. So really critical uh, batteries, semiconductors. We also saw the European Commission in September launch uh, their own private public uh, allegiance to secure vital raw materials in March, Australia, and then Canada also came out with these critical uh, lists. And really a big component of this has been the disruption of the COVID-19 supply chains uh, for the dependence on foreign production of semiconductors, medicines, really the components that these rare earth metals go into. Um, So we have seen America's support really uh, increase and really it's, it's targeting 
the supply chains that got really interrupted with, with China. So, Drew, what's your take on this race? Where does America stand? How are we doing? Well, it's got huge defense and energy applications, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, it's fundamentally important for, you know, a lot of these minerals, especially, you know, when you're looking at the bottom of the periodic table to build things like uh, missiles and then also uh, wind turbines and everything else. So I, I do think what we're looking at right now could be reticent or or would not reticent, but like reminiscent of what happened in the 1970s with oil, where it becomes a huge foreign policy uh, initiative for both economic reasons, but also security. Uh, by, you know, when, when we're talking about 2010, China at that point controlled 95% of the rare earth mining. Uh, you know, we got Mountain Pass in Southern California as the only open pit mining of raw earth mid- metals and, you know, the entire uh, North American continent. So, yeah, I, there's there's definitely a lot more intervention on part of both our government, but governments across the world, as everyone is, seems to be at least a decade behind China. Uh, you know, Australia unveiled a plan for, for processing critical um, minerals or inviting companies to apply for, for funds. Canada published a list of 31 critical um, minerals in order to create a plan to boost supply. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the investment is not quite there. Uh, also, it's very difficult because these mines can take five years at least to set up. And and, and then when you're talking about uh, if you're 10 years behind now, um, approximately, uh, you know, it's just it's just a time game that the, there needs to be a lot more investment. Um, if indeed you're worried about supply chains and you're worried about, you know, China's uh, global dominance on that fact. And then a lot of stuff that exists today, like cobalt mines in Congo, you have huge issues concerning to like labor rights, especially the amount of, uh, you know, child laborers that are in some of these places. Well, the government really are not just the U.S., but other foreign governments are really faced with, I think, two pressures. One, they're uncomfortable with their dependence on China, especially as tensions escalate here in the U.S. And then also the to limit climate change by developing clean energy technologies. So these these earth metals definitely are, are not the most green facilities. And then especially if we think about China, I mean, they do have a lockhold. If you think about the Middle East, they have a lockhold on a lot of the oil, whereas China possesses 72% of the world's cobalt and 61% of the lithium. So they do have a stronghold on these rare earth metals. Yeah, and that's the big dichotomy too, right? I mean, they're not the most environmentally friendly, uh, you know, but at the same time, a lot of it's needed for green energy growth. So the European Commission figures that EU countries will need as much as 18 times of the amount of lithium and five times as much uh, in cobalt by 2030 as they do now. So as people transition to clean energy, they need a lot more lithium mines. They need a lot more cobalt mines and everything else. And I mean, that's that's really uh, what I got, Grant. Is there anything that we overlooked that we should be discussing? Well, I mentioned it. And since cryptocurrencies are very hot, uh, we are seeing their scams spike. So nearly 7,000 people reported a combined loss of 80 million in the uh, six months prior to March. So that's pr- pretty significant. We're seeing that some of them are coming on through uh, online dating apps or uh, celebrity impersonators urging currency transfers. Also, a lot of them have begun on social media. 
so like most hot trends, whenever there is money involved and a lot of money, you do see the scammers go to it. So uh, just be on the watch out for, for that, especially because it is the blockchain's technology. So once it's gone, it, it's gone. Yeah. We mentioned lumber prices last week. Uh, some numbers that have come in for April have definitely shown that U.S. home building has taken a, you know, quite a drop. Um, so I think anything in regards to the housing market is something to look at. Uh, a housekeeping item before we uh, leave you all, uh, we will not be recording next week. We'll be on the subsequent week uh, for uh, Memorial Day. And then uh, the podcast will, for the majority of June, uh, be taking off. Uh, I'll, I'll remind everybody on the final podcast. But uh, once again, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the contents. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.